Hello, uh, welcome to this, the very first ever Clever People Doing Things podcast. We are buried in the basement of Chandler House. It's a UCL building dedicated to psychology and language sciences. We are in a room with no windows and where every single surface has been soundproofed. If you click your fingers, it just dies instantly. This is incredible. I'm trying to work out how I can make my living room like this. My name's Steve Cross. I'm head of public engagement at UCL. I have been working here for seven years and working with thousands of researchers trying to take their work out into the outside world. If I had to summarise my job very quickly, if you'd caught me drunk, I would say that my job is to drag academics kicking and screaming out of their labs and offices and get them to interact with real people. If I was being polite, I would say my job is to invite academics politely out of their labs and offices to interact with real people. So this is the first one of these podcasts we've ever recorded. I'm joined today by Dr. Erman Masurlasoy, who has recently graduated from his PhD at UCL's Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. Erman, would you mind saying hello and telling us a bit about the research you did while you were here? Yeah, hi. Um, so my PhD was in um, uh, action control and how we uh, stop ourselves acting at the last moment. So often when we, when we kind of uh, in the real world, in our everyday lives, often we're about to do something. And then we decide at the last moment, actually, I probably shouldn't do this. And then we stop ourselves just at that moment. Does your work have uh, real life ramifications? I mean, can it can it stop me making bad decisions on eBay late at night? Can it stop me sending emails that I really shouldn't? Yeah, so the research itself wasn't uh, immediately relevant to eBay. But the stuff that we, we found, uh, for example, could uh, identify brain activity that would predict when you... Uh, do successfully stop an action and when you fail to stop an action and in principle that brain activity should be generalizable it should apply to our everyday lives as well so uh, if we if we did happen to have uh, a brain scanner on you as you're <laughs> on ebay we could probably say okay at that point in time uh, steve was likely to uh, omit his action right stop his action yeah okay i like the idea of this so um what was the actual kind of experiments that you were doing on people how did you track whether they were going to do something or not do something yeah so it varied a lot uh, and it was very difficult to study brain activity associated with doing nothing so mm. that, that was always really really tricky mm -hmm. uh, but we used uh, a, a huge range of methods so uh, we did some brain stimulation uh, one of the studies i published used uh, electroencephalography or eeg right uh, which is basically you just uh, stick electrodes on the scalp right and then you get people to do things do you have to shave people's heads to do that uh, it makes the recording a lot better, but typically we don't because it's hard to find participants willing to shave their heads. Yes, okay. Uh, so okay. normally we just uh, stick a cap on and then put some uh, conducting gel on the scalp. Right. And usually that's about good enough to get a half decent signal. Okay. Um, so yeah, we do that. And one of the tasks was, for example, to uh, get people to produce rhythmic actions. So we just say to them every two seconds, press this key on the keyboard. And then we tell them whenever you feel like it at any time, just skip an action as well. So don't push the button on one on one of those uh, strokes of the beat and what we did was look for brain activity that could predict that they were about to skip that action and we found that even if we even if we tell them uh, be really spontaneous so only at the last moment decide we could still predict a couple of seconds in advance uh, that they were going to skip their action mm. so how quickly did you make people do these i mean the the reason i ask is i remember reading something and you'll probably tell me that it's nonsense and been changed that said that um actually we decide things really quickly like much faster than we think that we do and that what you're really experiencing is your brain then justifying the decision that it's already made 
I mean, so were you saying people were making these decisions a few seconds ahead of when they actually did the thing, but they didn't realize they'd made the decision? Yeah, so it, it really depends on what you mean by the word decision. Right. So is decision a kind of a conscious thing? Uh, or are you considering decision to mean uh, an, an unconscious thing as well? So uh, uh, free will is quite a, uh, it's one of those big philosophical problems in neuroscience. And there's lots of data to show that um, unconscious brain activity uh, predicts your conscious decisions before you've made them. So the idea is that uh, we don't really have free will in the way that we normally think about it, which is that we consciously decide something first and then we do it. It's more that we have uh, these un all these unconscious influences, whether they're environmental or uh, physiological, which then feed into our decisions. And then we have the conscious expression of that decision afterwards. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is a this is a huge problem in, in philosophy at the moment. Yeah. There are people like Dan Dennett who uh, shout at neuroscientists who say free will doesn't exist, and I kind of I understand his position, um, but yeah, it's just it's just very different to what we used to think it was. So it's not this kind of intuitive notion of I I decide to do something. I being the conscious me, the action doesn't start with that I. Uh, it starts before that with this all these unconscious processes that we're not aware of. Amazing. So your viva must have been quite interesting then. So for those listeners who don't know what that is, at the end of a PhD, you've written your thesis, which is tens of thousands of words mm -hmm. about what you've done. Um, and you've then got to justify it for two to three hours in front of usually a quite intimidating oh, yeah. person from outside your university looking to pick you to bits and work out whether you deserve to be a doctor. Yeah. How did it go? Uh, actually, the viva wasn't so bad. Right. But I think it's just because the examiners were quite nice people. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> But no, yeah, I mean, it, the write-up also, uh, actually I found the write-up wasn't wasn't that difficult, but only because I put lots of work in before that with publishing papers and things. Oh, you're that one PhD student. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So PhD students are always told you should write up everything as you go along so that you can put it all together into a thesis. And nobody ever does, and we all panic at the last yeah. minute and thrash it together. Sounds like you were one of the good ones. No, exactly. And that's because I thought I wanted to stay in academia forever because I loved it so much. It's very important if you do want to stay in academia to publish along the way, otherwise no one gives you a job. Uh, so I was very focused on doing that, which made the writing of my thesis very easy. And then the Viva was just kind of, uh, it was kind of like chatting with friends really for a few hours. So it wasn't, it was very tiring, but uh, uh, it was it was fine in the end. Sounds like you did a lot of preparation for it. For nothing? Uh, it was just yeah. nice. Actually, I remember I was I was playing Ultimate Frisbee the night before my Viva, <laughs> so, so I think that wasn't great preparation. Uh, but yeah, it went fine because I think I was well prepared. Okay, so this is a really nice segue. You you are a doctor now. Mm -hmm. You've done, you've finished, you've written up, you've been vivid. So so what are you doing now? I still love the neuroscience parts mm. uh, of research. So I love doing research and finding something new. So now I've started up my own company called Predico. How do you spell that? P-R-A-E-D-I-C-O. It's, it's a Latin word for to predict. And we do neuroscience research, but it's geared at uh, answering questions um, that would immediately help businesses or other organizations like charities. We go around businesses, whether they're in branding or marketing or whether they're uh, charities interested in how uh, you know school children behave. And then uh, we take their questions and we do some uh, tailored research to try and answer them as best we can. So, dear listeners, uh, one of the things that, that we at the UCL Public Engagement Unit have been doing for the last few years is giving out small amounts of money that we got from the Wellcome Trust to people working across the biomedical sciences who wanted to experiment with new ways of taking their work out to public groups. We called this Train and Engage, uh, and Ehrman was one of the first people that we funded through this scheme, which is partly why I've invited him back to have a chat about what he did. So, Ehrman, can you tell us uh, kind of headlines? What, what was your Train and Engage project? So it was called Mindverse. And yeah, and the idea was that we uh, 
got together poets and scientists and we got them all to uh, uh, produce spoken word poetry and it was just over one evening in a cafe in east london so everyone got on stage performed a poem to a, an audience of around 50 to 100 people do you know what kinds of people came to that because i mean one of the things that i see a lot I, I go to loads of sciencey events and a lot of the ones i go to i recognize everybody there yeah, there's kind yeah. of a sciencey event crowd but uh, it sounds to me like poetry would get a whole different bunch of people in so do you know what kind of people came along yeah definitely i mean there were still scientists of course because yeah. um i think there's always a few we don't yeah, we don't dislike yeah. scientists yeah i think i think it was, there was there was also value for them there so it was important that they were there but uh, at least half if not more were people i'd i'd never seen before at the end we had a kind of mailing list where people say also what they do or, or why they're there yeah and most of them were just uh not in science at all so they were kind of just interested in poetry and they go to spoken word events a lot um and how did you decide on spoken word is this a thing that you do a lot is it something your friends are into uh no not at all wow uh, so it's something that i came across like maybe two months before i started <laughs> training engaged. <laughs> yeah and I, so I, I ended up at this uh spoken word event and uh i just I thought it would. I thought it wouldn't be very good, but I sat there and uh, it was actually just amazing. And it made me think about lots of things in this completely new way. And I really enjoyed that. And I remember leaving that event and thinking, "Oh, I'd love to organise something like this myself." And then I forgot about that. Uh, but then Train and Engage came along, and while I was sitting and trying to come up with ideas, thought of uh, this spoken word event again, and I thought, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if we?" kind of did this with neuroscientists and yeah. together on the same stage uh, so that's how the idea came about so how did you get it so that the neuroscientists are happy to write something and and read it because isn't it a bit intimidating when you've got a stage where half the people on it are going to be semi-pro you know i do poetry every week and then it's uh, i'm a neuroscientist i've never written anything other than uh, descriptions of MRI experiments. How did you do that? Yeah, attracting the scientists wasn't so easy actually. Um, but what we did, uh, what I did was uh, get three main acts. These were all professionals. So I think one of them was James Wilkes, and he of was course. really good, and he helped a lot before the event as well, which kind of training scientists uh, to do this well. Um, and then there was Meg Beach, who's uh, also another brilliant poet. And then there was a main headline act who was uh, Ross Sutherland. So these were all pro people and I, uh, I kind of emailed them expecting no reply, but uh, they all got back and were really, really enthusiastic and they were all up for it. And the others were all <clears throat> open mic acts. So that's where we got the poets from. And then the scientists just signed up through emails that I sent around UCL. And I understand we do have a recording of, was it Ross Sutherland was your, your headliner? Exactly. Doing a specially written piece about neuroscience? Yeah, so he didn't write this specifically for the uh, event, uh, but he had lots of, the reason I, I approached him specifically is because, uh, well, he's very good firstly, but also because um, uh, a lot of his poems were already very relevant to, to the kind of ideas I, I had in my head about uh, the brain and the mind and how it works. Uh, so one of the poems uh, he wrote, for example, was about um, uh, it's, he takes the Little Red Riding Hood, the story, and then I think replaces every noun with the, with the word 23 entries below it in the dictionary. Once upon a time bomb, there were some swirling liverish gizmos known as the liverish red-blooded riffraff ooh-ha. One day, the mothership approached and said, Come, liverish, red-blooded riffraff hoo-ha. Here is a piece of calciferol and a bottleneck of winklepickers. Take them to your Great Britain. Great Britain is illiberal and weaponless, and this will do them well. Great Britain lived deep inside a word game 
a half-tone from the vernacular. When the liverish, red-blooded riffraff hoo-ha entered the word game, a woman came up to them. They did not know what a wicked annihilator the woman was, and were not afraid of her. A good day to you, liverish, red-blooded riffraff hoo-ha. Thank you, woman. Where are you going so early? To Great Britain. And what are you carrying under your aquilons? Our Great Britain is illiberal and weaponless. We are taking some calciferal and winkle pickers. We baked ying and yang, and hopefully this will give it stretch marks. So, Ehrman, as a scientist, it must be quite intimidating to be told you are going to write a poem and you're going to perform that poem on stage. Did you did you organise any training or anything like that for them? Yes, so we had um, a one afternoon set aside where all of the scientists who signed up, we kind of sat around a table with uh, James Wilkes, who was one of the professional poets. James kind of took us through a few exercises that he designed. Um, and it wasn't kind of, it wasn't a strict, this is how you write a poem, because no. we don't have that. Um, but it was just kind of to get people a bit more confident in themselves mm. and uh, let them know that they can actually do this. It's not that hard. You just get up and say some words. And even if they're random words, it could it could still be considered a poem. So it was just to make people confident. And I think it helped. I think after that, only one person dropped out. And oh, else, yeah, that was there's always bit, one. There's always one, yeah. And it was at the last minute, actually. So that was a bit of a pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it went, it went fine. And yeah, and all, and all the others... Uh, Blacklisted forever. Yeah. And all the others did fine. So it was really, really good. So how did your scientists find it in terms of you know, talking about the brain, talking about the way people think through poetry. Is is poetry particularly good for talking about neuroscience? Uh, I think so, because the language you use and the way you express it is very, very flexible. And you can do it in any way that you want. So by definition, it should be not necessarily easy because you're always thinking about your audience at the same time. And I think that's that's probably a good thing, actually, because at the point of it is communication. And often when you go to kind of lectures and things, it just seems like the scientist is saying what he did but not really focused on and whether people want to listen to that uh, so this so this was good in getting getting scientists into the mindset of thinking about their audience and are my audience going to enjoy this are they going to care about it and then kind of trying to form the words in a way that uh, you'd consider a kind of poetic structure but all of them seemed to do really really well and enjoyed it on the nights and although they they seemed nervous when they first got up on the stage by the end they were kind of really really happy with what they did did, did you write something oh god uh, yeah. Would you be willing to do it for us? Okay, so this was a poem uh, that I performed on the evening, and it was called Creativity, and it went like this. The possibilities are infinite in this vast combinatorial space. Thoughts collide and spiral higher and higher, until all marvel at the spire. Forms coalesce with more moves than a game of chess. The ground could shatter under the stress. Imagine the sun out at night the moon in its prime during the day, a joyful grey cloud looming over London, wanting to be loved. Imagine angels as hostile as Hitchcock's birds, or Picasso as an engineer, or ashes turning to flames. But the real proof of infinity comes in the concepts within concepts, and the endless recursions that show that I know that you know that they know that I know. This boundless space is the reason that art will always be alive. Constructs emerging from frantic patterns and rising up like floating sky lanterns. So join me on my quest to think every thinkable thought. Where novelty gets priority, where we fantasize until satiety. 
Grab your needle and stitch another image into your quilt, then another dimension, because this is a world of miniature storms that make no sound, and yet generate enough butterflies to lift me off the ground. Fantastic, and how did it feel performing your written work in front of those those poetry fans? It was a lot more exciting and scary than a lecture. It was really unusual, actually. I, I haven't really performed on stage like that before, so I, I remember I played drums once when I was in high school you can just sort of hide behind your drums and no one looks at you uh, but yeah so this was just out there on your own standing up there uh, so it was scary and you were kind of a bit shaky but uh, I, it was also really valuable and I learned a lot from it and I left feeling like really confident afterwards. So have you used those new writing skills for anything else? I mean I've definitely become a better writer during the course of my PhD but I don't know if that's as a direct result of the poetry but there are other stuff that it's helped so for example with confidence it has definitely helped and it definitely made me I think uh, a better speaker because I'm just more willing to you know if I can make an arse of myself performing poetry then I can do anything. If you can stand in front of a hundred drunk poetry fans and read something that you've just written in a style that you've never written in for the first time you can yeah. basically do anything at that point no exactly yeah so so after that whenever whenever i was giving a talk even if it was to you know hundreds of people i'd just be really confident so ermin you've been through the phd experience you've got all the way through to the end you've got your doctorate congratulations you didn't bail at the end of the second year when we all want to bail um do you have any advice for people going through that now for other researchers about how they should be taking their work out and who they should be talking to Yes, I think to start off, we should all write more poetry because it's just really fun and it's a nice way to think about your topic in a very broad, big picture way that's very flexible and just kind of stimulates a new way of thinking. Um, but uh, other than that, I'd say if you have uh, some event that you're thinking about that you think would be valuable to people, that you think would attract people, that you think would engage non-scientists with the work that you're doing, then just go out and organise it and do it. So uh, if you're at UCL, the UCL Public Engagement Unit are really, really good. So just talk Thanks. to them and yeah, talk to them and, and they can uh, they might be able to give you some funding to do it. Um, and I remember being quite uh, hesitant at the start and thinking, oh, will I have time for this? I'm doing my PhD at the same time and is it going to be worth it? And I, I won't get any headline acts and it'll be terrible. But I just uh, I just kind of plucked up the courage and went on and did it. And it was really good. And I think everyone should just uh, just go for it, really. Ehrman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for reading your poem. Thank you for sharing all Mm -hmm. of this. Thank you very much for listening to the first ever Clever People Doing Things podcast. We'll be back next week with another amazing researcher and another bizarre way to take your research out of the university and share it with real people. I've been Steve Cross. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time. 